All right, all right, all right. Go ahead and grab your Bibles, guys. Find a seat. Hey, as always, if you don't have a Bible, there's some available. You can raise your hand or you can feel free to get up and grab one off the side wing there. But if you need a Bible, just let us know. We'll we'll get one to you. Once you have a Bible in your hand or your phone or whatever you're using, um, go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. And what we're doing is on um, Wednesday nights, we're going through uh, the Bible, uh, excuse me, the book of Genesis in particular, And uh, it's been an amazing ride so far. This evening, we're going to look at most of chapter 15. So did I say, what did I say? I said Genesis. Yeah, we're going to backtrack a little bit and just, no, I'm just kidding. We're not going to backtrack that far. Exodus. Sorry about that. Exodus, Exodus, Exodus 15. Um, Let's pray once again, and then we'll jump in. Father, once more, we just pause for a second because this is, this is sacred ground. Every time we open this, Lord, it's, it's not like some history book from high school or something. This is the living and powerful word of God, and we want to approach it with the right heart attitude, and we want to ask you, God, you'd sharpen our minds and our attention. God, I pray that we would have soft and pliable hearts and that you'd just speak through me, but Lord, just speak through your word. We just give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I know a lot of you guys have been tracking with us through the, the Exodus story of the nation of Israel. Um, don't have time to, to, to bring us all like, to where we are right now, but I'll just say this, uh, that last week in chapter 14, we saw like this miracle of miracles as God has now um, split open the Red Sea and created a dry path for two and a half million people, his children, to cross over. Um, And as they've crossed through the Dead Sea, which is because they were hemmed in, they had desert mountains and a pursuing Egyptian army. But God made a way. He opens up the Red Sea. They go through. But then also, it wasn't just that they made it through to the other side. As Pharaoh and the army pursued them, what happened? He closed up the waters again and absolutely obliterated the Egyptian army. And guys, this is a watershed moment. This is a highly, highly significant moment in the life of the nation of Israel. And we're going to talk about that. Um, But tonight, what we're going to talk about as well is once that happened, on the heels of that, we're told that um, Moses then led the congregation in this spontaneous eruption of praise for God's power and his deliverance. And that's what the first 21 verses of chapter 15, which hopefully we'll cover tonight, is going to be dealing with. But let's just look at this with me again, starting in verse 30 of chapter 14, it says this, right after the, the water's collapsed onto the the Egyptian army and to Pharaoh, it says this, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. First one of chapter 15, 
Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Now I'm going to pause there. Before we get into the actual song, which we'll look at tonight, I want to back up a little bit because, as I mentioned earlier, this is such a hugely, hugely significant moment in the life of the nation of Israel. But there's something I want to lay out here um, as far as our understanding of Scripture, some typology and some theology. I kind of touched on it really quickly last week, but it's important, important enough to just maybe front load this, which will kind of wonderfully segue into the song itself. But I want to just take a couple of minutes. You can turn there if you want to. If not, at least jot it down in your notes, because I know you're all taking copious notes. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, there's a very, very significant little um, Holy Spirit interpretation by the Apostle Paul. Listen with me. If you're not there, just listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 says this. I want you to know brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Then skip down to verse 6. It says this, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil. Skipping down to verse 11, now these things happened to them as examples, and we'll pause there. What I want to draw out for you is this. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, listen, that the things that happened historically and experientially and literally to the children of Israel serve as examples for us in our individual relationship with Jesus Christ and our salvific, salvific I think is the right word, um, our salvation experience. Does that make sense? Paul says it twice. He says, hey, these things happen. They did happen, but they serve as examples, the physical cloud, the parting of the Red Sea, the later on the manna they're going to eat, the rock they drink from, all of those really, for reallys, happened to the, to the nation of Israel, but they serve as examples spiritually of our individual experiences with Christ. Does that make sense? The word he uses there, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 and 11, when he says these were examples, the Greek word for example there is tupos, and you can see what I mean. Isn't that crazy? I'm just kidding. I'll explain it to you. Um, so tupos, it, it, it's where we get our word type, or we would say typology. It means example. It means type, but it also means to leave a mark. And the idea is, is that, like, if you slam something down and it leaves an impression, for example, like, if you have, like, a frame, any construction guys or ladies in here, if you have a framing hammer sometimes, don't they have, like, waffle? Am I wrong on this? So some framing hammers have, like, a waffle design, and, and you leave it in your thumb when you, when you miss. So if you were to take that, that hammer with a waffle design on the head of the hammer and slam it into the wood, what happens? It leaves a waffle design in the wood. And that mark, that impression, is speaking of the real thing. Does that make sense? Yes or no? So all that to say is what happened to the Egyptians, it's like a mark or a type or it's speaking of a spiritual reality for us. Amen? So let me, let me go further with that. We've covered some of this already, but think it through with me. So for Israel, they were released from bondage in Egypt by the vicarious, that means a substitutionary sacrifice 
of a lamb whose blood, by faith, they applied to the doorposts of their house. Remember, we covered that a couple of weeks ago. And the angel of death, what? Pass over them. And so too with us, and we made the correlation a couple weeks ago, how for us, we are also saved from spiritual Egypt, from spiritual bondage of sin, by the vicarious substitutionary sacrifice of not a lamb, but the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who is called the lamb of God, and Paul even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Christ our Passover. That lamb back then was foreshadowing the ultimate lamb sacrifice that we, when we apply, if you would, his blood by faith to the doorposts of our heart, of our, of our lives, that means putting our faith in what he did for us on the cross, we are saved from spiritual Egypt. Amen? You guys got that part of the story. I got that part of the story already. But there's another little nuance to, and why I said earlier this is such an important moment in the life of the children of Israel. Listen, they were free from Egypt, and in a sense, they were technically out of Egypt. But then what happened? The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, listen, still wanted sway, still wanted dominion, still wanted to have the power in their life, so he's pursuing them. They get to the Red Sea, and God opens up the sea, lets his people through, and then boom, smashes them down. Point being, the Red Sea, listen, the Red Sea marked the complete emancipation of the children of Israel, not only from being in bondage, but the power of Egypt in their lives. Does that make sense? When Pharaoh got crushed and the army got slammed, like, they're like, they're, they're no longer a threat to me. Pharaoh has no more, if you would listen, dominion over me anymore. So guys, if the deliverance by the blood of the Lamb spoke of our salvation, what is the Red Sea picturing for us? Listen, just like the Red Sea for the children of Israel marked the end of the power of Egypt in their lives, listen, it typifies for us how that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, sin no longer has power in our lives. Amen? Our salvation is threefold. We are saved from the penalty of sin, and we are saved from the power of sin, the dominion of sin. That does not mean we don't have the, capa the capacity to sin, as Pastor Steve was teaching us in Romans, and I'm going to get there in a second. But it means that it does not have the same power over us anymore. Amen? I'm, I get excited about this because I honestly believe this is hell's best-kept secret. There's a lot of Christians that still live as though they are under the sway or they are under the dominion of sin when we are free. We think to ourselves, I always, I guess I'll always have to be like this. I'll always have to have a bad attitude or always have an anger issue or always be lustful. No, you can be free from the power of sin in your life. Not by your strength, but, but by his. And then, by the way, just so I don't leave you hanging, the third aspect of our salvation is the, the, um, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, which we're talking about right now, and then what? Eventually, the very presence of sin itself because we're eventually going to get to heaven, amen? And there's not going to be sin in heaven. But here's, again, just to, just to further confuse you on this, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, maybe you caught it when I read that, what does Paul say? He says, we've been, excuse me, they were baptized into Moses. Did you guys catch that part? When the children of Israel went through the Red Sea, blah, 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 all that, they were baptized into Moses. Baptism is like this, the idea of baptism, it, it, there's a lot of layers to it, but it's kind of this idea of initiation into something new. 
And it speaks also of identification. So they were initiated into this new leadership of Moses. They're identified as a nation now with Moses. But listen, Paul said something similar in Romans chapter 6. He says, we have been baptized into Christ. Hang with me. I know this is maybe challenging a little bit, but, but hang with me. We've been baptized into Christ. Here's the context of Romans 6, just to refresh our memory from a few weeks ago. In Romans chapter 5, it ends by saying this, where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds even more. So then Paul preemptively strikes and asks this question. The logical question would be, hey, if, if, if the more I sin, the more grace can flow through my life and glorify Jesus, why don't we just all go sin? And Paul's response to that was, impossible. That's impossible. Why? Because he says, how can we who have died to sin continue living in it? Don't you know that all who have been baptized into Jesus have been baptized into his death? The point is, guys, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you are baptized into Christ, there is a fundamental change that happened in us. We have been identified with Christ. And that means this, what's true of Jesus is true of you and true of me. Jesus died on the cross, and when we put our faith in him, we died with him. Does that make sense? We, he died, and we died. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He raised to new life, and guess what? Because we put our faith in him, we're baptized in him, we've been risen to new life. That's what it says in Romans 6, that we should walk in the newness of life. Amen? So the point is, is that for the Red Sea incident for the children of Israel, it was this marking this delineation of like the power of Pharaoh and his sway in our lives. He no longer has power over us. And guys, because we have been baptized into Jesus Christ, Satan still wants us. He can't, you know, he wants to have sway over your life. But listen, the only grip that Satan has on our life is when there's, it's, it's sin. But sin has been dealt a death blow because of Christ in our lives. Amen? Guys, we are free from the power of sin. And that's why Paul says in Romans 6, you've got to know this. You've got to know you've been baptized into Christ. You've got to know that sin no longer has dominion over you. And then he says this, and you've got to reckon it to be so. Reckon is like a, a, a mathematical term. It means do the math, draw the line, and come to a conclusion. Does not matter if you feel like it's true? Does not matter if you, sometimes it is? No, it just means this is what it is. Sin no longer has dominion over you unless you choose to give into it. And then later on he says, and so yield yourself or present yourself to Christ. So I took the time on that, and some of you are glad I did, and some of you are checked out already, but the point is, is that what happened in Israel's historical moment was hugely significant. They are free, and they get it. That's why they're about to explode into worship, because it, the light bulb's gone on. They are absolutely, completely, and totally free. And I want for us to understand that too. Guys, we've been baptized into Christ. We're not only saved from the penalty of sin, we are saved from the power of sin in our lives. We don't have to let it have dominion over us anymore. Amen? That's hope. That's, I, I honestly believe that is a game changer in the life of a believer. It's a game changer. Again, does it mean you're not capable of sinning? If you do, you can plead the blood of Jesus. There's therefore now no condemnation. Uh, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to purify you. And you can walk in victory. You don't have to do like 20 Hail Marys or a couple laps on your knees around the church or something. You can just enter into his full and finished work that he did for you on the cross and move on. Amen?
So good. It's a weak amen, but um, I'll let it slide. Now let's get to the actual song. And I, I want to just, I want to say this about this song. Um, first, I want to say this. I'm not going to dissect it. There's some portions of Scripture that are better just read. So we're going to read it in a second. It's kind of like sometimes you can almost kill the, the, the flow of it and kill the oomph of it by picking it apart too much. So I want to just read it and just kind of feel it with the children of Israel. But I do want to say a couple things about it, kind of front load it, um, just because I, I feel that responsibility. So first things, a couple things I want you to notice that are noteworthy about this song that they're about to sing. Number one, I just learned this this week. This is the first recorded song in the Bible. It's the first recorded song in the Bible. It's also the first mention of the word sing in the Bible. Now, the reason I bring that out is because there's a principle in Bible interpretation called the principle of first mention. When something is mentioned for the first time in the Bible, very often you'll find in that first mention clues or keys to unlocking understanding about whatever subject is being mentioned. Does that make sense? So here's a first recorded song of praise, and here's the first, you know, mention of the word sing. And so I believe that there are some really cool lessons as it relates to praise and worship of God that we're going to talk about in a second. Another thing I want you to, to understand is that this is an absolutely Lord-focused and packed song. The personal name of God, Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is used 11 times it calls him Lord. It is so God-focused. And not only that, he's referred to 45 times in 18 verses. That right there is a great lesson about praise music and worship music. It's got to be God-centered. Amen? I think all of us have, have noticed that there can be this thing, um, especially if you're a worship leader, we notice this. A lot of times songs can be very, they're emoting and they're, and they're maybe, you know, expressing the heart. And that's good and there's time and place for that. But when we talk about praising God, I, I believe songs need to be God-centric, Jesus-centric. It's not about how I feel coming to you. It's about who you are and what you've done. And I don't know about you guys, coming into a, a worship service and, and praising God right off the giddy, it just takes my eyes and puts them right back on, up and things just get into focus. Amen? I love that. I think it's a challenge to us worship leaders. I think it's a challenge to songwriters to, when it comes to praise songs. I, there's different kinds of songs, but this is a praise song. Um, another thing I just want to point out about this is this is a very spontaneous explosion of praise, and I want to I touch on that a little bit later. And now I want to give you, again, I said I'm not going to dissect it, but I can't help myself. I, I do want to give you a suggested outline for those of you who want to dig into it later. So this is my way of not actually dissecting it, but just dissecting it a little bit. Like cutting the frog open, but not getting into the guts. You know what I'm saying? Okay, shouldn't have said that. Um, notes for you guys. Here's a suggested outline. Verses 1 through 3 or a declaration of personal praise. And you'll see what I mean when I read it. It's very personal in nature. It's a declaration of personal praise. The second section, and there's really three to four sections here, verses 4 through 12, it's praise for God's power and his deliverance from Pharaoh. 
again, you'll see this when we go through it, he's going to recount just kind of in some detail of how God overthrew Pharaoh and the mighty hand that he showed and just, just kind of accentuating, focusing on the power of God in his salvation. Thirdly, in verses 13 through 18, there's the future implications of his powerful deliverance. I know that was a mouthful. The future implications of his powerful deliverance. Here's what I mean by that. Number one, he talks about, you'll see this in a second if I ever actually get to it, you'll see how he talks about how all the other nations are going to hear about what happened at the Red Sea. He'll talk about Philistra and all these places that are going to, man, when they hear about the power you displayed in splitting the Red Sea, they're going to fear and tremble. Did that happen? Let me answer that for you. That was rhetorical, but I'll answer it. Yes, it did. Fast forward to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua sends spies into the land. They go to Rahab's house. She's this prostitute, right? And she's just like, guys, I'm going to tell you right now, our city's freaking out because they heard about what your God did at the Red Sea. By the way, that was 40 years earlier. So it just struck fear into the enemy. But another important part, and, and, and this is where I am tempted to dive in, but I'm not going to, is the other future implication of God's powerful deliverance from Egypt and through the Red Sea they say, and because of this, you are going to plant us on your holy mountain. What does that mean? You're going to take us all the way into the promised land. If you took us out of Egypt, you're going to, you've got the power to take us all the way in. And is that not true, ladies and gentlemen? Listen, if God had the power to deliver us from sin, don't you know that he's going to take us all the way home? He's going to fulfill the good things that he's planned in us. So that's kind of a, a basic outline. And then there's at the end, we'll see um, Miriam, Moses' sister, is going to grab a tambourine, and she's going to get all the other ladies, and she's going to just kind of go off in this chorus, and it's just going to be this beautiful um, women's prayer circle. It's going to be awesome. So let's, look at, let's just read this together. I was tempted to have us all stand, but um, I won't do that. Let's just read it. I'll read it. Follow with me. Do not let your mind wander. Listen to the song of Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries and you sent out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? 
You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to the holy abode. The people have heard. They've trembled. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. And now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. And they are like a stone till you till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You'll bring them in a plant, you'll bring them in, excuse me, and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, that you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen? Verse 19. When the horses, uh, for when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and the horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, and that's interesting that she's called a prophetess here, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out and after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. She grabs the first stanza of Moses' song and just sings it out. So Moses leads this congregational song. Miriam grabs a tambourine, and I look around for some people that know me. Like, I have this tambourine phobia. Like, back in the day when we were starting our church in Oregon, um, I don't know what it was. There was a, a rash of tambourineers that were coming in. And listen, I don't hate the tambourine. I just think it's an instrument, and like all other instruments, not everyone knows how to play it. And so I remember having this, there's this classic scene that flashes in my brain. This is an aside. We'll get back to the text in a second. But um, story time. Uh, when we were planting our church in Oregon, I, I, the church was growing. We were maybe at 100, 150 people or something like that. And I had met with our deacons, and I was like, look, man, it, it, along with crying babies and things like that, if somebody's like pulling out tambourines and shingling a ding-dang in the, in the aisles and dance around with flags or whatever, like, look, they want to do that in their private place, like, but that's kind of not the vibe of what we're here. That's going to distract people from actually worshiping. I'm not saying you can't worship with a tambourine. I'm getting, I, I'm getting stared at. I know already. Um, so sure enough, we're having this worship service, and we're meeting in this little warehouse that fit 80 people. But we had like 110 people in there, and it was like the back doors rolled up. It was an old warehouse. The people are packed in. We're sweating. It's like a summer night. And we're worshiping. The worship leader's up there leading worship. And sure enough, I hear this ching-a-ling-a-ding-dang happening right by me. And I'm like, dang it, I got to set an example for the deacon guys. So I lovingly just kind of step over like, ma'am, um, so glad. First time here? Awesome. Just so you know, like, um, we, we kind of don't, kind of want, the, the, you know, the, the tambourine thing just because we don't want to distract seven or eight, ten people sitting around you from worship. And I got the death stare. They never came back. It was a bad situation. But anyway, all from then on, like, people were like, Jason hates tambourines. <laughs> I want to make the record straight. I know there's people listening that, you know, from Oregon later on the podcast and stuff, but they're going to be like, he, no, he does, he hates them. My, my deacons like leave tambourines on the stage for me when I'd go up and lead worship just to taunt me. 
Anyways, all that to say, this is beautiful. This is, a, you know, he sings this song. They're exploding in praise. They're like, yeah, they're stoked. And then Miriam grabs her fish-shaped tambourine, and, and she's just, you know, she's going at it, and all the ladies are joining in, and it is just like this jubilant, awesome thing. Have you guys ever seen the Jewish people, generally speaking, are very zealous people in a great way. I've had the opportunity to be in, in Israel on several occasions in the old city, they have a day they pick to do uh, bar mitzvahs so they can just kind of do them all at once. And you're in the old city, and all of a sudden here come a, just a huge group just, whoo, just singing, and it's crazy, and it's loud, and it's awesome. And I have that picture in my mind. They're just going at it. They're just exploding in praise. And here's what I want to say for tonight. And we're not leaving this early. Don't, don't get your hopes up. It's crazy talk. I want, to, I want to point out three things going back to the first verse or two as it relates more to the heart of worship. Remember I said this is kind of the first mention of praise, first mention of a song being sung, and I think there's a couple things here that just popped out of me. I'm not saying they're the most important things about this text or whatever, but these are the things that I felt like the Lord really put on my heart as I was just, it just came out just so easily. If you're taking notes, I want to give you three things. Number one, we're going to look at um, when they sang. Number two, we're going to look at that they sang, and I'll explain that. And thirdly, we're going to look at to whom they sang. We're going to look at when they sang, that they sang, and to whom they sang. Number one, when they sang. Look at verse one. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Just note that little hinge word, then. It's a connecting word, isn't it? It's a connecting word in that it's grabbing what just happened and it's transitioning you to what's about to happen. What is about to happen is as a result of what just happened. Does that make sense? Then they sang. The point is this. This passionate, unprovoked explosion of praise happened when? When they realized they were free. Let me put it to you a different way when their salvation became real to them, they just began to naturally explode in praise. Amen? What do you mean it became real to them? <laughs> well, they knew they were out of Egypt, but then there's still Moses on the horizon, or Pharaoh on the horizon, but now what are they looking at? Dead Egyptian bodies washing up on the shore, and the light bulb goes on, they're like, we're free. Like, for realies. Like, we're for real, for, like, they're not going to chase us anymore. Like, we're, we're, out of, we're not in Egypt anymore. They're dead. We're free. And it's like it became real to them. Listen, when will you and when will I become people of passionate, spontaneous, heartfelt praise? Listen, when our salvation becomes real to us. See, you can't teach praise. You can teach doctrine, and it's important to do so. You can teach method. You can teach technique. But there's no teaching real from the heart. Praise to God. That happens when a woman or a man, their salvation becomes real to them. Did you notice how personal this was? He says, in those first few verses, look at all the personal pronouns. He says, the Lord is my strength, verse 2. The Lord is my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. 
It doesn't say the Lord is strength. The Lord is salvation. He says the Lord is what? My strength. The Lord is my salvation. And guys, I just want to encourage you, listen, this is when it goes from the head to the heart. When it becomes real, that's when you become a person of praise. That's how it had to happen with me. That's how it's got to happen with you. Listen, I remember very clearly when my older kids were younger, and I'm pastoring a, a, a little church in Oregon, and I'm trying to avoid the stereotypical pastor's kid scenario, but I take them to church, and they go to church, and guess what? When everybody stands, no, you don't get to sit down. You stand up. Because, why? Why don't want to? Because we stand up to praise God. He's worthy to stand up. And I teach them to praise, and I model praise, and I, and I exhort them to praise, and I make them come and all that. But I knew something back then, and I know it now. That will only go for so long. Because at some point, it has to become real to them. And then real worship will take place. And it was the same with me, and it's the same with you. See, I know it was real with the day you got saved. And the day that I got saved, I think, I, I think back, and I've talked about my salvation day, and, and it was real. And, and I met, and I was, oh, praise God. You know, I didn't know all the lingo or the jargon or the Christian whatever. But it was, it was real, and it was exciting. But sometimes the new normal wears off, and, and we can get into ruts, and we can go through the formulas, and we can just end up coming to church and leaving church and this and that. But th then there's times when it becomes real again. You guys know what I'm talking about? where you hear something from a sermon or you screw up and you pray for forgiveness and you really get it, I'm forgiven, and all of a sudden you're just like, it's just, and then you're praising God and no one's got to tell you to praise God. No one's saying that when you're 30 years old, hey, stand up, it's time to worship. Like, you're just standing up and you're praising. Amen? I have a question for you. This is rhetorical, so don't answer out loud. Is it real for you tonight? Yeah. <laughs> Of course. Thanks, Mitch. <laughs> okay. But in all seriousness, don't, don't say a word, Mitch. Is it real for you tonight? Is your salvation real? Now, I'm not, I'm not, it's not a condemning thing if it's not, because I get it. We all get it. We go through life. You can't live on high all the time. But, but maybe ask yourself this. Is your praise passionate? Is it real? If it's not, it might be indicative of the fact that you've kind of, it's lost its awe. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do, Pastor Jason? Nothing. You're lost. Sorry. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's, just, it's like any other area of our life. We, we recognize it, and we come to God, and we say, oh, God, I'm sorry. And I, I'm not going to try to work something up. I'm not going to try to, like, cheerlead myself back into some, it's got to be real, and I, I feel like I've lost it. Would you just reveal the truth of what Jesus did into my life again? And you ask the Holy Spirit to just make that a reality in your life again. Amen? When, does, when did this passionate praise happen? When their salvation became real to them. Second thing, not only when they sang, but notice that they sang. They sang. We sing as people. Have you noticed that? We sing. Singing is just a part. No, I, I praise God for music. I praise God for, for songs. And, and listen, even before you got saved, you sang. You sang dirty, rotten, gnarly songs. Your life was a song that was not glorifying to God. But listen, 
When people encounter the risen Savior and their lives are transformed, a very natural and normal response to that is we just sing. Amen? I mean, I remember going to church as a little kid and I'm looking at people and be like, Christians are weird. We're weird, you guys. We're nerds. I mean, to the world. But I just remember think, like looking, I have this white picture in my brain of this one guy, just he would power praise, right? And I was just convinced the bones were going to pop out of the tips of his fingers because he was raising his hands so hard. And he would sing out loud, and there's people that couldn't sing, but they're singing anyway. And I'm just like, I will never be like that. I'm the guy. I'm that now. Because God touched my life. And when God touches your life, you sing a new song. And you sing. And you praise. And guys, I got to tell you that all through the Bible from tip to tail, God's people sing. It's happening here. It's going to happen in the history of Israel, whether you're talking about judges, their songs when there's victories, in Samuel, in Chronicles, in Kings, when there's, when there's victories, there's songs to the Lord. When Ezra and Nehemiah come back and they're rebuilding the temple and the wall, there's songs uh, to the Lord. In the New Testament, they're singing to the Lord. In fact, there's a story in Acts 16 where Paul is, is in prison having been beaten to, almost to death. And what are they doing at midnight? They're singing praises to God. Check this out. In Revelation chapter 15, those who've been martyred for the, their faith, and they're all huddled in heaven, guess what they're singing? They're singing, but guess what they're singing? The song of Moses. Which, by the way, there's two songs of Moses. There's this one, and there's uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32. But the point for now is that they're singing. They sing. We sing. Christians sing. We sing songs. I know that some people are more bent towards singing, more gifted in singing. And you might say, it's just not my thing, bro. It's just not me. Change. God did not save you to keep you the way you were. Sing. It's not comfortable. Get uncomfortable. I'm not saying you've got to come up here and do a solo. I'm not saying you've got to be the loud. But what I am saying, and I'm not making a case for just emoting or emotions or whatever, but I'm just saying, you know what? If there's no song in your heart, that, that, that makes me nervous. You know what Paul says, last little verse on this point, in Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll paraphrase it for time, he says in verse 18, don't be drunk with wine, that's debauchery. And what he's saying is don't be controlled by that, but be filled, controlled with the Holy Spirit. And then he begins to talk about what a spirit-filled life looks like. And the first thing on the list is that they say songs and hymns and spiritual songs to each other, making melody in their heart to the Lord. One of the first marks of somebody that's filled with the Holy Spirit is that there's a melody in your heart, there's a song in your heart to the Lord. Amen. Now, here's the last thing I'll say on this. And I've said it like 10 times already. This song was spontaneous. It was intuitive. They, their salvation was real to them. Bam, they just start praising. And sometimes it's like that. But I do want you to notice this little word here that's so powerful. Look at verse 1. He says, I will sing to the Lord. Sometimes it's intuitive. But then other times it has to be intentional. A matter of the will. David is like a great example of this. He'll, he'll be like, why are you downcast, oh my soul? Hope in God. Sing to the Lord. He'll be in the midst of some massive trial. And what will he say? I will sing to the Lord. And I just point that out because it's, this, is, this is like 
one of those little nuances and dynamics that could really change your worship experience. And, and I know it's not limited just to the four songs we do before service or something like that. But listen, there's times when it's just so easy. It just, it all clicks, it makes sense, you're riding high, you're feeling, you know, the Holy Spirit, and you're like, oh, it's just easy to praise. But then there's times where things are hard, and it's not fun, and it's not good, and you come into church, and you're not thinking about God, and you're mad at the world, or whatever. What do I do then? I don't want to be fake. Don't be fake, but sing to the Lord as a matter of will, because I got news for you. Whether I feel like it or not, God deserves to be praised. And we have so often, amen, we have so often made church about us and how we feel and what we're thinking. And there's place and time for that, and God cares about all those things. But sometimes we lose this. God is in heaven, and he is an all-consuming fire, and he is glorious, and he is awesome, and he is deserving of every breath that we have in us. So sometimes you have to shelf your feelings and say, I will praise God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10 says, I will offer, or he's exhorting us, offer continually a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. You know what a real sacrifice is? A sacrifice is something that costs you something. Sometimes you just gotta man up or woman up or whatever you do as women and just praise him. Here's a little, little backdoor application for this is that there's a, there's, a, there's a principle that Jesus laid down. He says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So, so often when you come in not feeling like praising, but you just decide to praise because he's worthy of it, guess what? Pretty soon, about a song or so in, you're in it. You're back in it. And he lifts your heart. And it's like the best medicine ever because it gets your eyes off of you and other people. And, and you just put your eyes on him. Amen? Last point, and then I want to end in a song because I think that'll be appropriate. Um, when they sang, well, when their salvation became very real to them, that they sang, they just burst it out in song. But number three, I want you to know, and this may sound simple, but it's a huge point. I want you to know to whom they sang. And again, forgive me if this is simplistic, but look at verse two, or uh, excuse me, verse one. Moses and the people sang this song, what? To the Lord. Now, we read the song. The song is about the Lord, but they sang to the Lord. Do you guys know that there is a world of difference in singing about the Lord and singing to the Lord? Are you guys tracking with me? It, it is, it's, a, it's a subtle thing in our heart and mind, but it's a world of difference. We can come in and sing about the Lord or we can come in and sing to the Lord. And by the way, this principle expands far beyond just our worshiping a few songs before service. If you're involved in any kind of ministry, you need to listen for a second. Sunday school, deacon, I mean any kind of ministry you can think of, this is a principle. It's not doing it for the Lord or for people or about people or about the Lord. It's doing your act of service, what? To the Lord. It's changing diapers in the nursery to the Lord. It's sweeping up messes that these Christians always make and spilling their coffee in row four. That's me, by the way. To the Lord. 
And if you can get this lesson down, you will be in it for the long haul. But if you don't get this lesson down, and I'm talking about ministry stuff right now, you're not going to make it. You'll be frustrated because everybody's not pulling their weight and everybody's and you'll get grumpy because all of a sudden you're looking for the applause, you're looking for the thanks, or nobody showed up to your Bible study, or nobody's singing when you're leading worship. Don't they know it's you leading worship? But if you're not doing it for the people, and you're not doing it necessarily about the Lord, or even for the Lord, as good as that can be, but you're doing it to the Lord as an act of worship, that is a blockbuster game changer right there. Amen? I can't tell you how many times, I, I was a worship leader way before I was a, a pastor. And I can't, I can't tell you how many times I'd be leading worship, and in my mind, I'm looking out, maybe I'm thinking, why aren't they worshiping? I can't believe they're not worshiping. This is a true story. This is why I shut my eyes during worship because I can't look at you. Whether you're, I'll be able to be like, wow, they're out worshiping me. They're really good. Or they're, why are they sleeping over there? You know, like he's texting. What? I just have to shut my eyes and just like, unto you. And, and there's like almost like a conversation that happens in my brain. I, I'll tell you, this is the truth. And Austin wouldn't admit this because he's not near as transparent as I am, but. I'm just kidding. You can be leading worship and thinking about like what you had for lunch or what you're going to do tomorrow and, or whatever and you have to be like, whoa, wait a minute, Lord. No, I, this is to you. And, and, and we can sing about God and we can do things for God and that's noble, but it's not as noble. It's not as on point as doing it for God. I mean, excuse me, <laughs> contradicted myself. Doing it to God as an act of worship. One of the first Bible studies, like when our, our church was starting out, and I think I've told this story, but I was all stoked, ready to teach. I come through the door, and I'm ready to preach to the masses, and there's 12 people there. And I'm like, this is not a 12-person Bible study. This is a 1,200-person Bible study. Where are they, God? And the Lord, I mean, he nipped it in the bud in my heart. This was a real game-changing moment for me. Are you going to do it for them, Jason, or are you going to do it as unto me. So I love you guys, but I don't even do Bible studies for you. I don't even necessarily do them for the Lord. I do them to the Lord as best I can as an act of worship. And then it doesn't matter if I get thanked or don't get thanked. I don't, it doesn't matter because I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for him. So it translates that to any ministry, all things. It's not, it, it, they sing to him. Guys, this is so huge if we could just get this. It's about doing it to the Lord. Let me ask you a question. When you're worshiping, and, and we're taking it into the realm of actually singing worship songs to God, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will just nab you every time you're just like drifting off, singing about, but that he'll just say, are you singing to me? Not in a mean, condemning way, but there's, there's so many times like sitting right where you're sitting, I'll have to be like, Lord, ah, where's my brain? Lord, you deserve, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to make that switch in my brain right now. Lord, this is to you. You are awesome. Listen, you don't, well, I didn't like the worship team. Who cares? I didn't like the song selection. Who cares? It's not about any of that. It's about you making a decision in your heart that you're going to sing to the Lord. And then you can be in any style, any whatever, because it's not about any of this. It's just about him deserving worship and praise. Amen. And then all of a sudden, you're just caught up in the moment and you're with him and it's because it's, it's directly to him. Amen? 
So many great lessons here. I, I love this. And, and I think if we could just end, and Austin, you can come on up if you want. Um, I want to sing. I want to sing to the Lord. I want to worship him. I want to praise him. But I think the, the one thing I just want to revisit for a second, maybe in the privacy of your own heart, is this. Is your salvation real to you tonight? And if it's not, I'm so stoked you're honest with yourself. Don't try to fake anything or make anything up, but just, I would invite you to just pray. Say, God, make it all real to me again. And even if I don't have that tingly feeling of it all being real again, I'm still going to worship you anyway because you deserve it. I'm going to praise you. And I'm not going to sing about you, just like, I'm going to sing to you because it's about you. Amen? Let's all stand together. Father, we thank you so much for tonight. We praise you for your word. And, and uh, Lord, thank you for the truths. Lord, at the beginning when we started talking about all the, the theological truth, it's hard to wrap our brain around those things. But Lord, could you just help us tonight just to get it again? We're saved. It's all true. We're, we're forgiven. The power of sin has been broken. We're headed to heaven Lord, you're so good. You love us. There's nothing that can separate us from you. And God, just we need you in a supernatural way to make that real again to us. And Lord, forgive us for the times we've gone through the motions of praise and worship and our heart is far from it and our mind is wandering. And Lord, forgive us for not realizing you deserve the best we have. Would you help us, Lord, to praise you and to worship you actually to you, to interact with you, talk to you in prayer. And although we love you, we thank you so much. Be exalted in our hearts and in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.